here with you guys. We have, we've been huge fans of what uh, God has allowed you guys to do for the, kind of since your inception. And uh, super, super grateful for, uh, for your presence uh, in Welcome and on this side of Greenville. And uh, there's, there's hardly a Sunday morning that doesn't go by that we don't pray for you by name. Uh, because we appreciate you. We value you. We value the kingdom's presence here and what you guys are doing. And uh, like Will said, my name is Matthew. Um, I get to be the, the lead pastor of a faith family called Origins Greenville, which most people are like, what does that mean? Uh, Origins is just a word for beginnings. Like when we planted originally 13 and a half years ago, our goal was to be a starting place uh, for believers in Greenville. And so uh, God's allowed us to do that and allowed to see a lot of fun stuff. And, and we're on Main Street, kind of near, we gather on Sundays on Main Street, kind of near the baseball stadium. And uh, we have community groups all throughout the city and uh, man, it's a lot of fun. Second career for me, but I'll be honest, I, I love what I get to do. And so grateful to be here. And to, to preach to people in pews, like that's a real treat for me. Like folding chairs. I'm used to folding chairs every week. I used to travel and teach and I was on the road a couple hundred days a year. And then when God kind of pulled me out of that and settled me in a church, like I got used to like folding chairs or coffee shops. But pews, man, there's glory in that. That's good. So <laughs> super glad to be here. So today, like I get the privilege of talking about a couple of things, and one word in there is suffering, and so that's great when a visiting pastor can talk about suffering, right? Because I don't have to see you guys next week, so if I drop like a heavy truth bomb and it's painful, I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm out. We'll take it and roll with it, so I get to do that today, and he let me pick, so I'm just like, man, I'm going to set them up so you get to knock them down and deal with it, but no, it'll be fun. Um, if the book of Philippians, like I need to give you a little bit of background before we jump into this particular place, because what Paul is doing in 27 through 30 is Paul's doing what so many of us struggled to do in English 101 in college or towards the latter part of high school, and that was to develop a thesis statement. I don't know if it's set with you. I'm, I'm a product of the public school, and then I went to a, a public college, and when I got to public college, I realized that I had no idea how to write. Uh, I, I was not nearly as smart as I thought I was. Romans 12, kind of an idea of do not think of yourself higher than you should. Like that was made real to me because I struggled. Like introduction, in that with a thesis, then some supporting ideas, three paragraphs, then a conclusion. Like thesis, I'm like, I don't, I don't even know how to spell that, much less write one. But what Paul does for the rest of this book to the church at Philippi was basically in 27 through 30 is he's creating that thesis statement, kind of that umbrella idea, if you will, of everything that's to come. The people at Philippi would have known Paul because about 10 years previous, he had visited them and he had come in in just kind of a, a quiet fashion uh, just to visit while he was on his missionary journeys. Um, and one Sabbath, he decided that he would find worshipers. So he went outside of the city, found a group of women worshiping outside of the city. They were worshiping the one true God, yet they had not yet received the revelation of Jesus yet, our one true way to God. And Paul was able to gratefully and graciously give that to them and see them come to Christ. And then he goes into town and some crazy stuff happens because the book of Acts, like if you don't know, man, the book of Acts is crazy. And so he goes into town and there's this girl that has a spirit in her and there are people that own her. She's a slave and she can, she can see things. She can talk about things. She knows things. She's got a spirit of divination, as scripture says. And she's walking behind Paul and his compatriots, Silas and, and Luke was probably there too, and some others. And she was like, they speak of the most high God. They're, you know, they're sent from Jesus, like over and over and over. And she just kept hounding them. She was telling the truth about them. She could see that. But at some point, Paul just gets annoyed by it after day on end of her following them, hounding them and doing this. And he turns to her and he's like, spirit be gone in the name of Jesus. And the spirit leaves her. And with the spirit leaving her, so did the possibility of gain of her slave owners. And so things went really bad for Paul and his buddies. 
They got beat, they got tossed into jail, and this is the church at Philippi's first exposure to Paul. They see a man coming in the name of Jesus, speaking truth, revealing the gospel, and he immediately almost gets tossed in jail and in prison. And then 10 years later, because he is like that spiritual father, he's writing them a letter that we call Philippians, and he kind of starts out. He starts out with like, hey, every time I think of you, like I think super, super warm thoughts. I mean, that's the way that we would say it if we were writing a letter, like my heart, yeah, it's stirred for you. I love you. I appreciate you. I value your generosity. I value your hearts. I value the way that you're pursuing the gospel. And so thank you. And then he gives them an update on like his circumstance. And believe it or not, the way that they saw him 10 years ago is exactly the way he is now. He's back in prison. It's possible that he was under house arrest in Rome, but either way, he's, he's under lock and key, so to speak. But he's like, but I don't want that to concern you because I want you to know, like, as a result of me being here, brothers, sisters, in the name of Jesus, I'm in prison, but the gospel is being preached. And not only that, but people are believing. People are giving their lives over to Jesus like crazy. People that should be in opposition to us, they're, they're giving their lives over to Jesus. And then he makes this statement. He makes this really, really interesting statement that most people are going to refer to a rock in a hard place, which that's probably not how I would phrase it. But in verse 21, he says, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. If that, uh, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my comings to you again. So basically, he's like, look, I'll be honest, I could die any day. I don't know. I don't know. Princess Bride was one of my, you know, childhood favorite movies. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Humpadink, humpadink, humpadink. But anyway, Princess Bride was really good. And, and there was a scene in which, you know, this guy had been captured by the Dread Pirate Roberts. You should watch this movie with your kids. And, and at one point, he's like, you know, live today because tomorrow I'll likely kill you. That's kind of where Paul was. He was under house arrest. And they're like, hey, live today because tomorrow likely you're going to die. And so he says, look, to live is Christ, to die is gain. He, and a lot of people saying it's between a rock and a hard place. But I read this and I'm thinking he's like between a cheeseburger and fried chicken, you know, kind of a thing. I don't know what your language is. Mine is food and like cheeseburger, fried chicken, double cheeseburger with bacon, maybe a little avocado. Don't hate me. But like that and fried chicken, both of those are really good. And Paul's like, look, I'm not between a rock and a hard place. I'm between a good place and a better place. Because, you know, to live is Christ. That's awesome. Like I get to be Christ to you. I get to be that father, that patrilineal figure to you. But to die, that's fried chicken. And all the fixings, like that's, and, and granted, that metaphor doesn't even compare, but for me, fried chicken's probably what heaven's going to be like to a degree, um, but it won't clog my arteries because I've got new ones, and i got an eternity to wreck them. But anyway, like, he's like, it's, it's good and better. And so then, after all of that, after his circumstance, after his greetings, after all that, then he launches into this thesis statement that we have that's going to set the tone for the rest of this letter, his kind of fatherly advice, his fatherly direction to the church at Philippi. And I want to reread it real quick. And so after giving them his update, his circumstance, now he's going to talk about theirs, and he starts and he says this, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, 
but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So Paul, speaking to them, after giving them all of the update, he starts with an idea for them that would have been a bit political in nature. A bit political in nature. Actually, the Greek word here that we have, it actually kind of translates for us in English into like this, this behave as citizens worthy idea. See, the, the people of Philippi, they were living as a Roman colony. Uh, they weren't in proper Rome, but they were in Macedonia. They were a Roman colony, but they were a very special Roman colony. They were a colony that, because they had been so good, so great, they were afforded special privileges. Like, they were exempt from taxes. They didn't have to pay poll taxes. They didn't have to pay what we would consider income tax because they were so much like Rome. Generally, if there was a colony outside of Rome, they weren't in Rome proper, they would have to pay taxes that would support Rome. But if you lived in Rome, uh, you were thought of so highly, say, hey, you live within our borders. You don't have to pay these taxes. But those Romans outside do. But Philippi, they were an exception. They were an exception because they were really good Romans living outside of Rome. And so when he made this one-word statement that we get our idea of politics from or political from in English, he said, behave as citizens worthy. And immediately their brains would have been transferred to this idea of being a Roman citizen in a colony that shouldn't be afforded the rights that they were, but because they were really good Romans, they had special privileges. Because what they understood, even living life as Romans, pre-Christian and even during Christians, it wasn't enough just to be good enough. Like it wasn't enough to do just enough to get by as Romans, to keep this status that they had, to not pay taxes, which was a big deal, to keep that status, they had to be on their best. They had to be really good Romans, the best Romans, even though they weren't living in Rome. They had to be the best. And so what Paul does here is he's speaking to people that understand Roman life, but he's going to try to, to flip it just a little bit. Because he said, behave as citizens worthy, but he didn't say behave as citizens worthy of Rome. He said, behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. What he would tell them later, just a couple chapters from here, is he would remind them that their citizenship had changed. If they were walking around with an eternal passport, it would no longer say Macedonia, Philippi of Rome. It wouldn't say that. It would say of heaven, kingdom people. He's telling them, my first thing that I need to tell you, this large umbrella statement for everything that's going to come after is remember who you are now and behave like that. Remember who you are now and behave like that. I think it's a whole lot like my parents when uh, we would leave the house on a Friday night to go to a football game. My mom would frequently say those words. Remember who you are. She would say that. Because she wanted me to remember a couple things. Number one, she wanted me to remember I was her kid. And there was some subtext in there too from my mama that she would also say, because if you don't, I'll break both your arms, both your legs. And that was my mom, you know? And you know what? I thoroughly believed it. She had experience to back it up. She was, man, she was a utilitarian spanker. Whatever she could get her hands on, she would do it. And I'm not, I'm not saying it was abuse. It wasn't. We deserved, we deserved the rod and the staff, and she would pick up whatever paddle or staff or rod she could find, and she would use it. And, and we deserved it. But she would say, remember who you are. And then very often, if we weren't quite getting it, she would also tack on that other motherism uh, and remember whose you are. And we're like, oh, Mom, come on, son, Mom. But she would say that. This is Paul speaking to like he's these spiritual children to a degree. And he's like, hey, 
only. If you can remember one thing, think this way, because everything's going to flow from it. Remember who you are. Remember where you belong now. Remember that your citizenship, it has changed. This is an identity idea. I think one of the things that we struggle with so most, and when, uh, and this is kind of a, a rabbit for me right now, sorry, it's not, not on the page, but one of the things that we struggle with so much, so much as believers is understanding that we are new. The old is gone. Right into Corinth, he says, look, behold, I want you to see, behold, the, the old is gone, the new has come. Don't worry about the old, just be new. The new by grace through faith that we've been granted. And here Paul is just reminding them, you are new, your citizenship has changed, behave in a manner worthy of that. We'll kind of flesh that out in just a minute. So he continues on the second part of this verse, and he says, so that whether I come or I, I see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for faith in the gospel. This is kind of military ideas, making sure that the front line is unified. Spoke to them in Roman terms. Now he's speaking to them in military terms. People that were people of Rome, they would have understood what the military looked like. Many of them would have probably served like that, or at least they would have viewed it, and they would have known what it looked like for a force to march out shoulder to shoulder, step in step, going into battle. Similar idea here. He's like, look, uh, I want you to understand who you are, where your kingdom is, and I want to know whether I come or whether I'm just listening, whether I'm reading letters, no matter what. I want to know for a fact. I want to know with certainty. I want to know with assurance that what I know about you is that you're side by side, shoulder to shoulder, marching in the same direction. Going for the same thing. That's all he wanted to hear. Behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. Stand side by side. Marching in the same direction, shoulder to shoulder. And then after that, he said in verse 28, he said, not frightened in anything of your opponents. They had a couple of opponents back then. Uh, and understand, we got context is everything. Context is everything. We can make this sound like, oh, it was their thoughts. It was their ideas. It was the politics of the day. No, 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 no. They had real opponents. Opponents are someone that is opposing you, in opposition to you. You're going one way, they want you to go another or stop you from going the direction that you're going. Like opposition. Sometimes we experience words, and words are painful. Sticks and stones might hurt my, you know, break my bones, but words, they hurt. They do. They really do hurt. But at the same time, they had real opponents. At this point in time, they had uh, Jews that were living amongst Philippi, Jews that were not Messianic. They hadn't chosen the one true Christ. They hadn't believed in God that way. They were still holding on to the own way, their old ways. And, and so some of these Gentiles who were believers, the Jews would look at them and be like, you have no right to talk about these things. Those aren't your words. It's not our, your heritage. That's ours. You can't believe those things. And this Jesus guy, pfft. No. No. So they had Jews, the people, called out by God who should know, should know, but didn't. Straight opposition. Don't speak those things. Don't believe those things. Don't talk about those things. Don't be those things. Not you. And then they had Rome. Like, because believe it or not, to be people of the way was illegal. Like, that wasn't permissible by Roman law, to be people of the way, to be people that followed Jesus. Like, that was against Roman law. Why? Because Jesus was Lord, but Caesar should have been. And so for them to claim a Lord other than Caesar, it was illegal. And they saw Paul arrested before, and they've probably been arrested before, and, and they're looking at Paul now, and they know that he's likely in Rome, and for the same reason that they could be arrested, they had opposition. He's like, I want to know that you're unified. I want to know that you're shoulder to shoulder marching in the same direction, a unified front, but I also want to know that these opponents that are coming after you, I want to know that you're thinking rightly enough about God to know they really can't 
hurt you. Now, they can hurt you, but they can't hurt you. And I know that sounds weird, but we'll get to that. So then he continues, and this is where it gets really good and sticky. He says, not frightened at anything of your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but your salvation, the way that you're not afraid, it's going to reveal to them something. It's going to reveal to you something. We'll get to it. And then verse 29, kind of a, if we read it in Greek, it's, it's just, it's jumbled. It's jumbled just because Greek to English, believe it or not, doesn't always work perfectly. But this is the way it pops up in modern English translations, and I'll tell you more. It says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So basically, this granted idea is like the active form of grace. It's like graced. You know, that's probably the way, or, or graciously given, either way. It says, for you have been graciously given or granted two things. Two things. One, to believe, which ultimately we know leads to salvation, and two, to suffer. Same grace, two things. To believe for salvation, to suffer. But then there's this modification on the end, for the sake of Christ. Man, this one's hard. Because I, I love grace. I want to be a grace guy. I want to live in grace, you know? And, and I strive every single day, and some days I miss it, because some days I still think I've got to earn what God's offering. And that's not me living in grace. That's me living in earning. That's legalism. That doesn't lead me to Jesus. That leads me away from Jesus. And so what I need to do is confessionally repent, turn back to the fact that Jesus has done it. I don't have to. Now I get to live in response to that. So that's grace to believe for salvation. And so that's been granted to me. But that second part, not only have you been graced to believe, you've been graced to suffer. To suffer for the sake of Christ. Here's our human condition, though. Take a communion cup. This is self, okay? This is the way we're born. We're born as self, and we believe from an early age that everything good that comes in revolves around self. It's called egocentric. That's the way we're born. It's part of the result of the fall. We think that everything's about me. Everything's about me. Not even you. You're about me. When mom and dad feed me, it's about me. When mom and dad patch my knee, it's about me. When good things come my way, it's about me. Now, on the contrary, when bad things come my way, it might be about me too. But this is our identity. We're born egocentric, thinking about ourselves. And if we view this passage from this lens, it will never make sense. It will never make sense if we are at the center of everything and things revolve around us. Because if we're at the center, grace makes sense for salvation. We're like, oh, yeah, thank you, Jesus. I love that stuff. I'll have that all day. Give me seconds. You don't need seconds, by the way. His grace is enough. Amen. We'll take that. We can take that, but then, like, suffering comes in, and you're like, mm, no, mm -mm. that doesn't work in orbit around me. Grace good, suffering bad. In the late 1400s, early 1500s, there was this guy, Nicholas Copernicus. We say it because he was from Poland. Nicholas Copernicus was born in a, a very religious family, um, and after his father died, his uncle was sure that Copernicus would end up in religious service, and they, they just, he assumed it, that he would end up in religious service, but he started uh, in the university there in Poland, in Krakow, and then he moved uh, to Italy and took up astrology and astronomy, 
And up until that time, the astronomers of the world believed that the earth was at the center of everything. We had some erroneous thoughts about how everything worked. You know, we thought the earth was flat for a long time, and there's still people arguing that it's true. But anyway, we're not going to get into that. But, but we thought, based upon observation, that everything revolved around us. Because we would get up in the morning, and we'd see the moon go down, and it had just revolved around us once, obviously. And then we'd see the sun rise in the east and set in the west. It's going around us. We'd see the stars, maybe the same stars. We'd even chart them and realize that some of those were planets. And we're like, oh my gosh, I can see an orange planet in the sky. That's pretty crazy. And it's revolving around us. But up until the late 1400s to the early 1500s, most astronomers believed that the earth was at the center, not egocentric, but geocentric. And Copernicus, when he was studying astrology, which they would use to interpret how life would happen, he was also studying astronomy, the way that things really happened, and he began to, to notice things based on extended observation. That maybe, maybe, just maybe, everything's not revolving around us. Maybe, just maybe, we're not at the center. Maybe, just maybe, something else is at the center. And he began to look and to, to study and to dig and to start talking about it. People didn't like it. But then around the you know, early 1500s, a little bit later, he, he published his work. I think it was in 1544. And declared, hey, we are actually a solar-centric society. We actually revolve around something bigger, something brighter, Something gives life. Now, there's great spiritual implications there. I mean, we revolve around the S-U-N, but in life, we revolve around the S-O-N. Pronounced the same, but spelled differently. But either way, I'm not going to chase that rabbit. But that's, that's, what, that's the conclusion that we come to, and we have to come to that. Because if we don't come to that conclusion, when we get to texts like this that say, yes, grace from Jesus grants us salvation, access to God, union with God, to be able to speak of God, to be able to hear from God, to be able to bear God's name, yes, that's amazing. But if we're still egocentric and letting everything revolve around us, when someone says that same good that grants you salvation also grants you suffering, we're like, hey, get out. It doesn't make sense because we're still attaching this phrase of for my sake, for my good, for my benefit, for my glory. But if Jesus is the benchmark, Jesus is the standard, we need to adopt his language. And every time he was asked, he's like, no, not mine. It's the Father's. Not my power, it's his. Not my glory, it's his. Similar notion. Even Jesus, God with skin on, that walked among us, always took every opportunity to defer to the Father and reveal to us that we're not at the center. It's not all about me. It's not all about you. It's not even all about us collectively. So we have to reorient our brain. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And then he modifies it a little bit. He, he gives them kind of an example of what that suffering could look like in verse 30, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. He's like, look, I'm suffering in prison again. You saw it happen to me before. Beat with rods, tossed in jail. Now later he got let out because he was like, hey, by the way, you know I'm a Roman citizen? They were like, oh, sorry. But he's like, this suffering, it's by grace. And it's going to happen. So that's their circumstance. What's ours? So generally, the, the way that my brain functions, like I, I, I want to love and live in Scripture and I always have to ask, like, what, what is this saying to them? What does it mean for them? And what does it mean to us? Or what do we do with it? Because if I'm just reading Scripture and know it and I'm not asking what do I do with it, it's kind of a pointless exercise, right? So I want us to ask and answer, what do we do with it? And I think we go back to the top. 
And he says, behave as citizens worthy or only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. I think the first thing that we need to do as believers, not as Roman citizens, citizens of heaven, according to chapter three, is we need to strive to be more than just good enough. We need to strive to be more than just good enough. Now you say, wait a second, I've already got salvation. I don't have to earn a stitch. You're right. You don't. I don't. We don't. But there's an expectation of response to the goodness that God's displayed. And we can never measure up. We can never uh, equal what's gone on, like the amount of grace that he pours out. We can never build good works enough to measure up to that or to, to possibly equal that or be on the same level. But at the same time, we should try. We should try, not in an effort to earn, but because it's already been given. Like Dallas Willard, he says, grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. Love Dallas Willard. He was a smart old dude. He was probably a smart young dude, but when I started reading, he was an old dude. Grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. This grace that's been richly displayed on us, poured out on us, allowed us to be alive through the gospel of Christ in union with God through Jesus, inhabited and sealed by the Holy Spirit. Like there's something in me that should change as a result of that. Yes, my life should change. The passive sanctifying work of God, where he's making me into someone that looks more like Jesus, that should change. But the way that I live in pursuit of him should also change me. Like, I should understand that getting by is not just good enough. I'm not saved to sit in a pew, as wonderful as pews are. Like, the point of our salvation is not to come and plop down and warm the same seat for 70 years and die as a spiritual infant, but going to the same church our entire life. That's not the point. That's the status quo. The point is not that I, I rest on grace, but I live in grace. I pursue grace. I speak of grace. I welcome more and more grace, not in an effect of my multiple sin, but because I'm trying not to. Behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. Hold the gospel of Christ high. Realize what it granted me and say, I'm going to do my very best with the Spirit indwelling me, equipping me, and empowering me to live up to that. The price that we were purchased with is beyond our understanding, beyond our, any comparison that we have earthly. But at the same time, we're not trying to repay God, but we are trying to live a life that's worth it. And the moment that we stop, we abuse grace. We've abused grace. We have made it cheap in the words of Bonhoeffer. I don't want that. I pray you don't want that. Now, there are days I live it. Confessionally, I'll tell you, there are days that I just rest on it. But that shouldn't be the norm. And after recognizing it, my response, Jesus, I am, I am confessionally sorry. I'm convicted by your spirit to tell me that good enough is not good enough. And so what do we do? Man, we pursue our identity through scripture. Learn who we are more and more. We can never know enough. And that means, hey, if you've read through this 27 times, let's go on 28. 57 times, let's make it to 100. Keep on keeping on regular, repeated exposure to Scripture, however that needs to work. We find our way because grace is a high bar. We behave as citizens worthy. We live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. We take the effort, make the effort to figure out who we are. Discipleship. Very often, you need to find someone who's further along on this road than you, that's been in the saddle a little bit longer than you, and you need to say, look, if they haven't approached you yet, you approach them. By the way, all of this is meant to be conveyed relationally. 
Like God didn't intend for us to be a bunch of cave dwellers reading books by ourselves by candlelight. He intended to redeem a people, not a person. So we need to do this, pursue him together, through his word, together. We do this here collectively, but we also do it in smaller expressions. Jesus spoke to the masses, he spoke to the 12, he spoke to the three. Kind of like super simplified there, but he did. We figured out how to be discipled in every one of those environments. Yes, you're here. You're in the masses. We got that figured out. You're doing a great job at it. I've enjoyed worshiping with you. But get with a, a few people. Speak into each other's lives based on what God's teaching you through Scripture. Trust God, the Spirit, and His Scripture, and His people to speak truth to you. And then maybe, maybe you need a little more. You find that person that's been riding with Jesus for 25 years, and you can tell. Not just because they say it, but because they live it. And you say, I need, I need what you got. Can you share with me? And they can. They can. Or maybe you're the person that's been riding with Jesus for 25 years. Or maybe even three years. It doesn't matter. If you're further along with Christ than somebody else is, maybe you see them, you have a relationship with them, you know that life for them is not easy, not good, not, not it's far from safe right now. And you say, hey, let's, uh, I don't know, let's grab a burger or fried chicken next week. Again, rock in a hard place. Mm. Maybe follow it with a little banana pudding. I realized that I had made it as a pastor on Easter Sunday when somebody brought me a homemade banana pudding. And I'm like, man, it's taken far too long for this to happen. And it was glory good. But anyway, sorry. It always goes back to food. That's who I am. So scripture, discipleship. Hey, and here's the other one that we often overlook. If we want to know who we are, ask the guy who made us. Spend time entreating God through the Spirit, saying, God, I want to know who I am. Would you tell me? Would you tell me? We go to so many sources when very often we just need to stop and just, just go to God. He wrote the manual. He designed the product. He owns my heart. He bought me with a very high price. If anyone knows who we are, he does. And I'm not trying to over-spiritualize this. I'm trying to make it simple and spiritualized. Go to God. He speaks, and then again, he'll speak through his scripture, he'll speak through his people, he'll speak through his spirit. Don't believe it. Don't, you don't believe it, don't ask it, but if you do believe it, ask it. God, I believe that you can show me who I am. I believe you can show me who I've been remade to be. I believe you can reveal to me my new identity. Show me what that is. I think we strive to be more than just good enough. Second thing we do based on, on this kind of thesis statement for Philippians, strongly worded, insist on unity. Insist on unity. Now, I don't know, like, if you, if you think about that idea of insist, but insist means I'm going to do everything in my power and in the power of those around me to make sure that it happens. Like, for me, I, I think about this as, uh, when we were kids, we grew up in the country, and we had something called a hose pipe. I know that's, I know that's an oxymoron. It's a bit redundant speech, but we did. We had a hose pipe. And if me and my siblings, there were four of us, we would spend our Saturdays in the woods building a fort, and we'd have to come home, and we'd crank up that hose pipe, and all four of us would drink out of the same one. Hold me. Hold on. As church, as the church, as this church, we got to drink from the same hose pipe and then get back to work. Insist on unity. Making sure we're being fed from the same source, and it's good. We don't want to drink out of a hose pipe if the water's bad. Number one, that leads to all kind of problems. Know where your water comes from. Make sure we're drinking out of the same thing. And then when we're done and we're refreshed, get back to work. 
And where that metaphor ends, like, I think we need to understand, like, yes, strive side by side, shoulder to shoulder, like a united front, go after the same thing, but with the understanding we might be going after it with different paces, because that's what maturity does. Some people are going to run fast, some people are going to run slow, some people are going to crawl. That's okay. We got spiritual infants, we got young adults, we got parents, we got all of those things. A healthy church should make sure our goal's the same and that we're all going in that direction. Sometimes that may mean that you take your hand and you put it in somebody's back. You make them a lead blocker, even if they didn't know they were supposed to be. Sometimes that means you, you pull somebody. Sometimes that means you ask somebody else, I need you to push me, I need you to pull me. But just making sure we're heading in the same direction. Drinking from the same hose. Because here's the problem. Man, there will be so many little distractions that can come in, take root, and just stratify us and point us in different directions. Take stock often. Kill what needs to be killed. Give life to what life needs to be given to, but make sure that what we're giving life to is what we're pursuing. For you guys, I know that it's pursuing Jesus together, making disciples, pursuing justice. Just make sure you're all doing the same thing. Be all in. From one pastor to another church. Chase Jesus together. Chase the glory of his kingdom together. Be kingdom people together. But don't just do it passively. Do it actively. Insist insist on unity. And when distractions come in, just root them out. Root them out. And I know, I know that Pastor Will would tell you this. If, if you're a part of this faith family, you have a voice. And if you see something that no one else sees, you, you come to Will. You come to one of the elders and say, hey, I think this thing that we're, that we're chasing, I'd like to talk to you about it. I don't know if it's right. He'll listen. If there's a distraction that comes in, root it out. Insist on unity. And here's the third thing. And keep Christ at the center. For these next few ideas in this same text right here of not frightening anything of your opponents, what that shows to them, what that shows to you, but also the granted for the sake of salvation, but granted for the sake, for suffering's sake, for the sake of Jesus, like neither one of those things are going to happen if Christ is not at the center. Like keep him uh, at the center uh, Romans, I'm going to flip there really quickly. Romans 8.31, it says, So what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Right here, if Christ is at the center, we need to know that whatever is brought against us, whatever the opposition can bring against us, none of that opposition is more powerful than the, the victory that Christ has already given us. None of it. Now, will there be pain? Yes. And this is not downplaying what suffering is because suffering literally means like a weight that we are bearing, a weight that is crushing us. But our eternal salvation, our eternal place, our eternal destination is already secured and Jesus' victory has already been won. It's not up to me to win that. It's not up to my opposition to take that away because according to this, they can't. So if Christ is kept at the center, to be honest, it doesn't matter what comes. 
It doesn't matter who brings it. Because the victory we've been granted through Christ and Christ alone cannot be removed. It can't be. The only person that could remove it would be God himself. And guess what? God's not going to. Christ must be at the center if we're going to not be afraid of those who are coming after us. But Christ also must be at the center if we're going to ever figure out that the same grace that grants me salvation is the same grace that grants me suffering. Because if we don't have that when suffering comes, we're going to say, God, why? Explain yourself. Did I do something wrong? Are you trying to discipline me? And, and here's an answer. Sometimes, yes. The beautiful thing about this is Paul is not, Paul's not trying to explain it, and Paul's not trying to categorize it. As a matter of fact, the word that he uses right here, pasco, just literally means to suffer. He could have said dioko, which means persecution. He could have given us another word that means test or trials, but he didn't. He said suffer. Suffer could be a ton of different kinds of things. He points to his suffering, which means jail time, like being held captive at the moment by Rome. And he said, you saw it before, you're seeing it now. But he also used that word suffer, which could mean a litany of things. A litany of things. But I think here's the way that we quantify it. There's one of two ways. Number one, is this thing because of Jesus and for his glory? Is it because of Jesus and for his glory? Jesus told his disciples, he's like, look, they're going to hate you, but understand, they hated me first. They're going to hate you because they hated me. That's from Jesus. That's because of Jesus, because we have aligned ourselves with Christ. Paul wouldn't be in prison if he hadn't aligned himself with Christ. There wouldn't have been law-breaking in him unless he was going and actually trying to tell people Jesus is it. He's the only way. Not Caesar, uh, not anything else that you've ever worshipped, but just, just Jesus. Hate to inform you, but I'm also blessed to inform you. Throw me in jail. He wouldn't be in jail if it wasn't for the call of Christ on his life. But at the same time, Paul also understood that his persecution or his arrest was also an opportunity to give glory to God by sharing the gospel with all within reach. And he even told him, he's like, look, but I don't want you to be upset because I'm in prison. Yeah, I'm in prison, but guess what? Man, whole praetorium, whole group of soldiers confessing Jesus as Lord because of Jesus, but for his glory. That's scenario A. Scenario B may just be your sufferings just for his glory. It may not be a direct result of the fact that you've claimed Christ, but it can be for his glory. Jesus is not going to waste pain in us. He's not going to. He's not going to waste pain. And so I, I want us to think about really quickly. I know um, I'm, I'm, typically, I'm not super Baptist, but I can be long-winded. Um, I want us to think of a couple things really quickly as how this looks. And, I guarantee, and we're not going to, but I guarantee if we did a raise of hands in here, at the end of it, every hand would be up. Because that's the church. I think the first way that we can look, if it's scenario B, if it's uh, this suffering is by grace, um, it's by grace because of this, that it can bring glory to God. I think one of the things that when we suffer that we need to understand and identify is maybe just the point of this suffering is that it just further unites us with Jesus. And this is very much mental, very much emotional that it just further unites us with Jesus. If we stop for a minute and we think, man, I, I am suffering in a similar way for a similar reason that Jesus suffered, other than hanging on the cross, because that's one suffering that I'll never endure. I'll never be able to hang on the cross for the sins of all mankind. Won't happen. At the bequest of God the Father. That, that won't happen. But up until there, there's a ton of sufferings that I can endure, persecutions that I can endure, that Jesus endured first, and I may get to endure simply because I claim Christ. And we need to understand in that moment 
that what is occurring right there, regardless of the outcome, is we get to identify with Jesus just a little more, whom we are co-heirs with, which is crazy, and to think that just, just in a little bit of moment, in a little bit of pain, or maybe a lot of pain, I'm getting to go through just a piece of what he went through for the same reason, for the glory of God. And in that, that brings a little more union with Christ that we so desperately need. And, and that's incredibly like a deep and spiritual walking along and having some maturity to confess it down the road. Because I, I honestly believe, like as an infant believer, that might not be something that we figure out because everything's still revolving around us and our mind hasn't shifted yet. Maybe it needs to, because it will. But at some point to realize, I get to suffer like Christ should bring me great joy. And that won't happen if we're still at the center. Because we're just going to be like, man, this is unfair. No unfair is that my sins were blamed on a, or replaced on a blameless Jesus. And he died on my behalf. That's what's unfair. The fact that I get to suffer like he did, that has nothing to do with fairness. That's grace. That'll take us a while to figure out. And that's okay. Hopefully we got a while. The second way, 1 Peter 5, 6 through 9 We'll hit that again in just a second, but First Peter 5, 6 through 9, it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Verse 9, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings you are being, are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Maybe our suffering, here's the point of our suffering, maybe our suffering is just to equip us to pray for someone else who's going through the exact same thing. This particular passage says there's no new suffering. There's no new suffering. You're not unique. Maybe you don't like to hear that. You're not unique. You are unique, but you're suffering, probably not. If you've experienced someone else's experience, as a matter of fact, someone else is experiencing right now, and if you're being grace, if you're being given power, if you're given victory over that, uh, who else knows better how to pray for that other brother and sister whose name we don't even know, or maybe we do? Who else is better equipped to intercede on their behalf? No one. Me. If they're experiencing the same kind of suffering that I am, I know exactly how to pray for them. I know what they're thinking. I know what they're feeling. I know the day-to-day -day struggle that they're going through. And I get to intercede for a brother or sister that I've never met. So maybe before you start thinking that your suffering is just about you, understand that it's not just about you because we're not at the center of the universe. It's probably about God's glory. And if it's for God's glory, if we're suffering, someone else is stop and pray. God, this is killing me. I know it's killing someone else. You know who it is. I don't. But God, I pray that you would comfort them today. You're going through divorce? Divorce is terrible. There's other brothers and sisters going through divorce too. And they need the same grace you do. You're battling addiction? There's other brothers and sisters who are battling addiction. You know best how to pray for them. Pray for them. And what happens at some point, maybe you can learn their names. Then you can pray for them even better. Not about me, not about you. It's about the glory of God. And the glory of God is best revealed in his kingdom, living out like kingdom people which means we intercede for each other. Continuing on through that same thing. Man, sorry, bending over is tough. The other thing is that our story should and can reveal Jesus. Our story should and can reveal Jesus. Remember, we kick back up just a little bit, not even thinking about the grace to suffer kind of a thing yet, but of, hey, don't fear anything of your opposition. For to them, it's their sign of their destruction, but of you, of your salvation, 
like it's revealing your salvation to some people. It's pointing out that they don't have it, but they can. But to you, it's reminding you, man, I've already been delivered. Victory's already been granted to me because of Jesus. But then, then there's this. I said, God's not going to waste a pain. God's not going to waste a struggle. When you get to the other end of it, when you get to the other side of it, when God has brought you through, because again, according to the same passage in 1 Peter, it says, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. After a little while of suffering, whatever it is, whether it's persecution, whether it's trial and temptation, whatever falls under that suffering category, if it is for and to be used for the glory of God, at the end of it, your story has amazing power. Your story has amazing power. Imagine you have uh, made it through this incredibly ridiculous, horrible, painful battle with addiction. Not made it all the way through, but you're on the other side now to where you understand that you're leaning on Jesus and not leaning on the thing that you were addicted to. And then you meet somebody that's at the beginning. Believer or not, imagine the hope you can convey. Imagine the hope you can convey that where you are is not where you have to be. You lose a parent, someone else is going to lose a parent. And imagine just being there waiting to sit, to listen, to mourn, and tell them the sun will come up tomorrow even though they feel like it won't. Imagine someone that doesn't know Christ, who has no hope because their circumstances have stolen every bit of it. Imagine hearing that they can have hope. Always be prepared to give a reason for our hope according to Scripture, because God will work through that for the glory of himself. A couple of years ago, um, had uh, when I used to travel and teach, I, for some reason I, I would be uh, I'd be down in Barnwell, South Carolina, a lot. Barnwell, gateway to the Low Country, as they would call it. It's like a different language down there, and different pollen for sure. Um, met a guy named Steve Hafe early on. Steve Hafe was this uh, mountain of a man. Like he was one of those guys you'd shake his hand and your hand would disappear, regardless of how big your hand was. Just, just a man, like a dude, and. And a court, you know, in this church that I was, I was working with at the time and, and doing various things for, uh, he was like a Marine. He was first in, last out, no matter what we were doing. That was Steve. And man, he was just a presence. Like, and, and you couldn't equate it to anything other than the work of God in his life. Like, he was just that guy. He always smiled. He had lost all of his teeth at some point. They were all false teeth, you could tell, but they were good. They looked good. He had good work done. But he was that guy, the first person to greet you, even before the pastor, even before the staff, he was the last person to make sure you were packed up and had everything you need. He'd offer his couch. He'd go stay there. And over several years of, of back and forth down to Barnwell for conferences and youth events and things like that, I, I just got to know Steve and his wife really well, and they're, they're uh, German shepherds. Um, and I, it had been a couple years since I went down to Barnwell to do anything, and I got invited back, and someone said, hey, you need to run by and see Steve. He's really sick. I was totally unprepared for what I was going to see. But the pastor in me was like, yep, I'm going to go. I'm going to encourage him. I'm going to tell him things like, you know what, Steve? No matter what, healing is going to come. All the pastoral words and the cliches that we've become so accustomed to. In this life or the next, Steve, you're going to be healed. 
And I walked in and I found this mountain of a man was now wispy, bald, struggling to sit up in his recliner. Cancer was killing him. And I really thought I would go in there and encourage Steve Hafe. I thought that, man, my voice is going to matter today. And so we got to go and sit with Steve. And to be honest, I didn't say a word. There were people coming in one after the other to hear Steve, to see Steve. And guess who did all the talking? Steve. To the point to where he had to struggle to sit up because of the pain and the way the cancer had just killed him. And he would struggle to sit up and take a breath just to say how good God is to people that didn't know and people that did. And at one point, uh, we, we were going to sing. They just wanted to sing and worship him and his wife. His wife was sitting on the arm of his chair. <coughs> and she had to hold his hand up because he just wanted to lift his hand up and praise, and he couldn't do it on his own. She helped him. I drove home, and I just, I just broke. <laughs> I wasn't sad for where Steve was going. I was rejoicing on behalf of him that he was going to go home, and he was. He was going to be ultimately, completely, totally healed. But man, I drove home, and I wept because I realized at that moment I could not die like Steve Hayes. I valued my strength. I valued my ability to do things. I valued my life the way that it was. And Steve had all those things. And in that moment, all he could say was, thank you, God. And with his last stitch of effort, all he wanted to do was raise his hands and praise. Steve, in that moment, showed me what it was like to suffer for the glory of Jesus. Because he probably shared the gospel with 100 people that week. They came to encourage him. And Steve said, let me tell you about my hope in Jesus. We can view suffering selfishly. We can view suffering as punishment. Or we can view suffering as an opportunity. And if we understand whom we're revolving around, it becomes natural. To understand that God's not going to waste a breath of my life, even the ones that are labored. God's not going to waste a breath of your life, even if it's labored. What comes out when we're squeezed, it matters. It matters. I had a, had a pretty crazy wreck at the end of 21 on my last motorcycle. That will be my last one, um, unfortunately. And it was, man, it was a work in progress. It was a 1981 CB900 that I had rebuilt from ground up, and I'll, I'll miss it. But I'd rather have my wife and kids. Um, and I remember being in the hospital in a slightly drug-induced state, um, I was in ICU for about five days, and uh, and at the end of it, like I, I kind of had to go back and put some tabs on the things that I said, and think through what came out when I was squeezed. And I'll be honest, I think the Spirit inhabited me very richly during that time because I was not in control. And I, I told I told a ton of people about Christ in that week, and I'm not bragging on myself. I'm bragging on what the Spirit can do, and we just kind of. Let go. And I'm not advocating drug use to share the gospel. That's not, that's not what I'm doing. <laughs> I am thankful for modern medicine, uh, uh, really, in that moment. I'm, I'm super grateful for modern medicine. But I think the longer that we've walked and talked and breathed with God and relied on him and realized that he's at the center, 
when the time comes and we're squeezed, hopefully what comes out is him. Hopefully what comes out is him. And believe it or not, like I, I think if we just kind of remove ourselves from the equation and just realize that we are revolving around the sun and all of his glory, he will do those things. He will speak on our behalf. He's interceding on our behalf. So why wouldn't he speak when we say, God, my words, they're yours. Take them, do whatever you want. And when I'm squeezed for your glory, let it come out. Behave as citizens worthy. Understand what that means. Embrace it, chase it, pursue it. Understand we get to do it together. And understand it's really not going to take on rich meaning and full understanding until we move ourselves out of the way. And we put Jesus at the center. We put Jesus at the center. Um, man, I want to do this for you guys today. Uh, if you'll bow your heads and close your eyes, I'm just going to ask a couple questions. And I, just as a, a visiting pastor, I want to pray for you. Will, is it okay if I end it this way, if I step off this way? Um, if you're in the middle of suffering and you have no idea how God can use it, if you're in the middle of suffering and you have no idea how God can use it, I just want you to raise your hand. In the middle of it, you have no idea what he's going to do with it. I see your hands. You can lower them back down. I just want to pray for God to give you clarity and bring himself the most glory possible. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the sufficiency of Jesus and God, the lack of in ourselves. God, for those who raised their hands and even those that didn't that are sitting here, you know their names, you know their stories, you know their struggle, and God, you know their suffering. Father God, I pray that you would give them wisdom. I pray that you would give them patience. I pray in the name of Jesus that you would give them perseverance to see you use their struggle for your glory. God, I pray that if they're sitting on their own throne right now, that you would remove them, that you would move them to a, a synchronous orbit around your son and let them understand that this battle is not about them, but it can be about your glory. Father, I pray that you move in them starting today to just ask you, God, what do you want to do with this? How can I be a part of it? And God, I pray that you would use it. God, I thank you for the grace for those that raise their hand if they already know you. I thank you for the grace that they've experienced through salvation. But God, I pray that you give a realization of the grace that can be found, felt, and understood in suffering. For the glory of God. And God, as a result of their suffering, I pray that you would draw men and women to yourself. I pray that you would refine those believers who need to think better about who you are and how you've made us. And God, I pray that you would bring great, great glory to yourself by allowing them to submit. And within this church, Father, I pray for great support for them. Some brother or sister to come beside them and say, I've been there. Let me walk with, it, walk with you in this. God, we thank you for the way that you orchestrate all things for the good of those who love you, called according to your purpose. And Father, we pray we accept it. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his name, his word, and his power. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.